0: I'm Jessica Doerr, and you're listening to The Offering for July 2022. In the early stages of the pandemic, I got super into Martin Shaw's storytelling and writing, and the first book of his that I read was called Courting the Wild Twin. My copy is a small purple book that includes stunning tellings of two Norwegian tales, The Lindworm and Tatterhood. Shaw introduces the wild twin visual by saying, there's an old idea that each and every one of us was born with a twin— who was cast into the forest at birth. And that the consequence of this early exile is that we spend the rest of our lives seeking out that twin, doing elaborate things that look all kinds of ways but that are each variations on trying to come into relationship with the long-lost outcast sibling. So then sometimes what we see as dysfunction is an expression of yearning, a way of seeking, trying to reconnect with a cast-off part of ourselves. For me, it was choosing ill-fitting, painful romantic relationships for years as a way to get in touch with my twin who was just fine alone thanks and couldn't care less what a man thought. It was only after an especially harrowing run-in with a wizard and a wild woman in occupied Ohlone territory and reading Shaw's book that I finally came face-to-face with my own twin. She taunted everything about me but especially my gait. I was always on tiptoe with lovers, she said terrified to wind up alone in the woods where she'd lived her whole life. And before she slunk back into the redwoods, she noted, rudely, how a lot of good it did me playing small, given every autumn I'd still wake up on the first frosty morning alone. Even after the encounter with my twin and our gradual warming up to one another, I haven't stopped caring what lovers think or believing on some level that being big and being loved are mutually exclusive. But this is okay because, to my mind, the quest for the twin isn't about fixing anything or getting rid of anyone. I did start standing more on the whole of my feet after her, learned to distribute my weight a bit differently. And I do find that it's easier to keep my balance this way. So that's good. In the Lindworm story, the wild twin is a tiny snake who grows into a large one. There's a line in Shaw's telling on jealousy and how the outcast snake peers in from the woods at the lucky brother— the one who got to stay in the home with the hearth and the good foods and the hugs. Shaw asks something like, were you happy to watch, cold and alone from outside as your privileged twin enjoyed all the spoils? And he admits, I know I wasn't. As someone who's struggled with jealousy myself, I've thought about this a lot since reading it. I'm a person who's done Google Scholar searches for articles about therapeutic interventions for jealousy. I've sought the hidden value and benefits and even virtues involved when it's a virtue I'm convinced that I need of being happy for or inspired by others instead of insecure. I've thought and written, for instance, about the value of sympathetic joy, which is the capacity to experience other people's triumphs as if they were one's own. But lately, when I find myself jealous or threatened or feeling a way about something someone else has or does or is, I'm trying to be a little less quick to take the blame for it. Rather than jump to bear the weight of every insecurity and hard feeling, I've been challenging myself to wonder about the kind of home that divides, that would cast me or someone else into the woods on the day of our births in the first place. When I can look at it this way, I often find that some space opens up. I start to see something. We are undeniably entangled and embedded beings living inside of a world— This means that hard feelings are not conceived immaculately in one's belly, as if the human body were a hermetically sealed container. But there's a great deal of confusion about this, I think, for a lot of reasons. And when there's too much confusion about the root of a thing, it can be hard to tend in a way that is fruitful. Sometimes when I'm confused or at a loss, I remember the Cornish lovers Tristan and Isolde, but especially Tristan. Having sustained a wound that will not heal, He sits in a boat with a harp and asks the river to carry him to the source of his poison. I've been wrestling with a wound of my own, which weeps a kind of anger that has me more than I have it, the kind I apologize for in complete earnest over coffee, while at the same time knowing in the back of my mind that in some way it is justified, that something large and scaly owes me a confession and a sorry and a game plan for restoring what's been lost, things I'm never going to get. Still, careful not to play the victim or make excuses, I've been in the boat, plucking the strings of my own little harp, seeking reasons. To mythologize is to seek the currents and patterns that one is a part of beyond the particulars of the self. And in this way, it is, or at least has the potential to be, a technology for liberation. I like Toni Morrison's definition of freedom as the ability to choose your responsibilities. It's not having no responsibilities, she says, It's choosing the ones you want. I want to be responsible to the eggplant plants in the front garden and my next-door neighbors in the summer heat. To the school kids in my neighborhood and my puppy and my aging parents and my lover. But I'm angry because a thief has crossed the threshold of my home and private life. Implanted artificial desires outside my bedroom window who howl every night into morning crying I'm meant to care about them. I'm mad because what should be sacred moments are now commodities to sell ads against on social media. The miracle of my body is a brand, and my humanity reduced to a veneer of sparkling charisma, to the point it seems that everything I do now is, or should be, for work. To give a bit of context for those who haven't been following along this summer, I've been studying capitalism more closely— I've been listening to Janet Kent and Dave Meester's book On Fire podcast, in which they're reading Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, chapter by chapter. And shout out to my friend Kelly McCarthy, who put me on to the podcast. They've been highlighting the ways in which, with the creation of capitalism, humans required all manner of forcing, rearranging, and manipulating to adopt a new way of seeing not only society, but what it meant to be human. Life was not about work, but if this new economic system was going to pan out— the masses would need to believe that it was. We would also need to believe that the self is defined by consumption. In early offerings, I've shared some of what I've been reading in Philip Cushman's Constructing the Self, Constructing America, which presents a cultural history of psychotherapy. Cushman tracks and details the making of an American self that is defined by what it consumes. We all know that the family of origin impacts our sense of self, often extremely and sometimes adversely. But just as no individual comes up in a vacuum, no family does either. And if you live with chronic resentment or encompassing anger or insecure jealousy that just won't quit, what you probably won't find if you do a Google Scholar search for evidence-based interventions to address these things is that you live in a culture that defines the self by what it owns. Possessions, of course, have nothing to do with what it means to be human, and so, of course, there's disturbance. In the offering on September 4th in 2021, I wrote about Rachel Pollock's interpretation of the devil and paired it with Paulo Freire's critique of a materialist understanding of life. Pollock writes, quote, Denying any spiritual component to life, the materialist pursues only personal desires. The devil's power rests in the illusion that nothing else exists, end quote. In Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Paulo Freire writes that, This way of understanding life is a symptom of having internalized the consciousness of the oppressor, for whom, quote, apart from direct, concrete, material possession of the world and of people, could not understand itself, could not even exist, end quote. Sometimes when I'm suffering, I can see that such a deep investment in having things I don't really need makes it hard to believe in anything else as substantial enough to sustain me then freedom becomes an impossible task. But Frary writes, freedom, quote, must be pursued constantly and responsibly. So I'm trying to stand with my small offerings at the point on the map where I say I'm angry and an invisible, pervasive force says, well, don't look at us, tells me to look only inward, at myself or at all the others down here in the trenches, at my parents, my boss. Take it up with your rotten, spoiled twin," says the force, Sure, she was just a newborn when it happened that you were cast ruthlessly into the forest, but she was complicit nonetheless. It was she who chose to leave you out there all winter, when you were so tender, left to fend for yourself. How dare she? Don't look at us. The thing about refusing accountability whether it's individuals or institutions or whole systems, is that refusal doesn't rectify the need for adjustment. If I'm not responsible for my actions, the people close to me will be forced to bear the brunt or opt out altogether. And when opting out doesn't feel possible, that anger has no place to go but back on itself and inward. If you were thrown into the forest at birth, you've likely been told in every way possible that whatever you do, you are not to blame the house for it. Do change your thoughts, control yourself, get your own skills up for othering. Don't refuse the projection, look at the culture that created the archaic custom to begin with, or question the philosophies that said home and forest were at odds to begin with. One of the things I often hear people say, and have definitely said myself, about jealousy, is that you can transmute it in order to tap your own latent potentials, Just take that jealousy and turn it inward. Ask, what does this want from me? Call me to claim in myself and so on. And honestly, I think it's true that you can do good work this way. I feel like I have. But I still think about the twin in the woods. In the Lindworm story, the twin is a giant snake who eats people and who has every right to be mad. A lot of people in this world, including you and me, have every right to be mad. Not only do we not have to be happy for others, if there's anger there, it matters. I've found that, for me, it's often a lot easier to squint my eyes from my perch in the woods at the lucky twin who got to stay in the home and enjoy the spoils, rather than interrogate the home itself or the village it sits in. So there's a third option, I guess, between being either jealous or mad or being happy for others when it's hard. And if there's one thing I've learned from tarot and old stories and psychology and life, it's to look, always, for that third option. What about keeping our anger? taking it up into our arms and plucking it like a harp for a lullaby, singing and playing and joining a rage choir of billions belting out to the forces who have ensured our continued confusion, not only about the source of the poison, but at the most basic level about what it means to be human. I want to be really clear, too, that I believe deeply in the legitimacy of interpersonal angers and resentments— I don't believe naming collective experiences in any way negates the validity of the individual. It's just that I, like many, have spent a lot of time thinking about the individual as the final frontier in healing. And it's brought me to a place where I want to know more about the family who cast the twin into the woods to begin with, and who that benefits. And I especially want to know who benefits when I take on the burdens of a sick society and call them personal pathologies. Problems to be solved solely through self-care or self-development or self-help. You're listening to the monthly offering for July 2022. I make these offerings in both text and audio formats, both monthly for free and weekly for those interested in supporting the effort, with a contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. If you'd like to sign up or upgrade your existing subscription, hit the subscribe button in the body of this post, and if you feel moved to share, please do. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The theme song is called Evaporate, and you can listen to that and more of Lee's music at the links in this post or wherever you stream music. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you next time.